Max Verstappen is on a roll. With pole, victory, every lap led, and the fastest lap of the race, the Dutchman has taken total control of the title. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name is Michael Laminato, and welcome to Round 9, the Austrian Grand Prix. For Heeltread.com, socks inspired by iconic cars. Use the code word STRATEGY for 10% off. If Verstappen's Styrian Grand Prix victory was emphatic, his Austrian Grand Prix at the same track one week later was brutal. The Dutchman had no challenges in his first career Grand Slam, and he now wields a 32-point championship margin. Mercedes had another weekend to forget. It spent the race battling with Lando Norris's McLaren, and damage to Hamilton's car before half-distance dropped him to fourth, shipping only more points to Verstappen. Norris finished a superb third, despite a five-second penalty, while Carlos Sainz managed to capitalise on two five-second penalties to Sergio Perez to finish fifth in another strong weekend for the Spaniard. But the story of the race, in fact of the last five races, has been Red Bull Racing and Max Verstappen's ascendancy. Hurtling towards the mid-season break with all the momentum, can the Dutchman be stopped? To debrief the race, I'm joined by F1 freelance journalist and my co-host from Australian Grand Prix podcast In the Fast Lane, it's Matt Clayton. Matt, how are you doing? Michael, very well. Not as good as Max Verstappen, though, based on uh, what we saw last weekend. Well, who is? <laughs> At the moment, he's uh, the, the happiest man on planet Earth right now, isn't he? He is, absolutely. The championship gap, 32 points, which is obviously more than a race win, and that's one of our magic markers, I suppose. Mm. Still a lot of the season to go, but there was there, there's something about... The Verstappen and Red Bull racing combination isn't there at the moment. Obviously coming off a a wonderful streak of wins for him and for the team, an even longer streak of wins. But what's your feeling coming away from not just the Red Bull ring, but this triple header with a couple of races to go before the mid-season break on the state of this title fight? He's just so matter-of-fact at the moment, Max. And I think, you know, Lewis Hamilton mentioned this in the lead-up to the race. He said, well, it should just be an easy win for Max Verstappen. And you never know with Lewis whether he's, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of mind games going on or what have you. But Verstappen's just like, yeah, I think it is going to be an easy win. And, you know, you look at the the course of last weekend where he was fastest in all but one session, led all three sessions of qualifying, and then basically nobody saw him after the safety car restart on lap four. And, but this is just a, a rinse and repeat for him. But I guess the, the good news, if you're looking at uh, silver linings for everybody else, is that uh, well the next race is not at the Red Bull ring. And I say that because we've had four races within one calendar year at the same circuit. That's never actually happened before. It's uh, four more races than Australia's had in that last 12 months as well, Michael, <laughs> mind you. But uh, f- four races in one calendar year at the same track, it sounds completely bizarre. Are, but I think, uh, look, if we turn up in Austria, I think we know what's going to happen, don't we? Yeah, I feel like it is certainly set in stone at the moment. And let's talk about that because quite aside from the four races in a year, we've had two races in a row again. And with the exception of the the tyres being softer this weekend, and in a sense, the cooler weather made up for that in the race. It meant that it wasn't quite as dramatic a step as it would have been last weekend when it was warmer. Mm. It, You know, we've had... A lot of learning undertaken over the course of that week. We saw in qualifying, it was almost a little bit two by two, wasn't it? With a lot of the teams qualifying very close to one another with only a couple of exceptions. And in the race, okay, we got a couple of differences, but really, in Max Verstappen's perspective, it was really perfecting what was already a very good race last weekend. Taking the broader outlook here, these double-header races, okay, they are sort of pulled in case of emergency races, but does this put to bed the idea after having three good pairs last year that 
this is not a way of the future for Formula One. Look, I mean, you'd only want to break glass on this in extreme circumstances. And let's face it, 2020 and 2021 has been extreme circumstances. But I think you touched on it there. The the potential variable for this race compared to the Styrian Grand Prix, yes, we know we had the softer tyres for the Austrian GP, but the difference in track temperature, if we had had this combination of tyres with the track temps that we'd had for the Styrian race, the, the track temperatures for the Austrian GP were 20 degrees cooler. It's a massive difference. So if we'd gone the softer tyres with the hotter track surface, then perhaps we'd have seen a bit more of a, a junked up grid and perhaps a result if, you know, maybe for the for the minor placings. But all of these factors and the fact that Red Bull are still bringing up upgrades mm. to this car, it just played perfectly into their favour and just moved the game away a little bit more from everybody else. And, you know, we saw the never really saw Verstappen's true performance until he decided he was just going to take an unnecessary pit stop <laughs> near the end just to guarantee himself fastest lap and then went out and did a lap that was one and a half seconds quicker than anybody else managed for the entire race even on new rubber that is a massive margin so you look at the the softer tires the cooler track temps and the fact that Red Bull are still throwing truckloads of stuff at this car it was just the, the perfect storm for them there was another interesting parallel but this result was a little bit more different in this second race and that was Lando Norris. He's done quite well across both races, qualified highly in both. And while he did sort of stick around early in the first race for the Styrian Grand Prix, played a much more substantial role in this race, held up the Mercedes for longer, held up Valtteri Bottas, probably would have held up Valtteri Bottas for the entirety of the race had he not copped a penalty, which we will talk about Mm -hmm. in just a second. What do we make of that side of performance? Because while it's, it's, it's well and good and correct, of course, to say that Red Bull Racing's really in a bit of a purple patch, especially with Max Verstappen, Mercedes does seem at least a little bit out of sorts, certainly relative to Red Bull. But then the McLaren interplay here, is this McLaren having a really good weekend just matching this circuit and Mercedes being off colour? Or are we seeing some much more substantial signs of progress from McLaren than I think we were expecting. I think the more substantial signs of progress, there is something about this circuit and Lando Norris. We saw that last year in 2020 when he scored his first podium there. But you look at this track, effectively, it's three straights, three DRS zones. That car is so good in that configuration. You add someone who's becoming a bit of a specialist at that circuit. And the other thing with Lando Norris, the guy is just in unbelievable form. And you could argue that... Other than Max Verstappen, he has been the driver of 2021. He has taken a massive leap this year. So you combine those three things, I think that's why Norris was such a significant factor in Sunday's race. But you know, I think McLaren, we've seen Ferrari have its odd outlier results in that sort of battle for third between McLaren and Ferrari. But at the moment, Norris is the guy making the difference. But I think fundamentally that car probably is the better of the two. But you know, again, I think him in that circuit, you do have to look at this result and say, okay, we know he's been good in some other places, but Austria is a bit of a special case for, for Lando Norris, it seems. It certainly seems the case. I wonder if you'll be disappointed, actually, to go home to Silverstone and <laughs> wanted another race, perhaps, in, in Austria. It wouldn't suit him too badly. Let's have five races. Why not? Yeah, well, I could come back here later in the year. We don't know. We can't be certain about <laughs> how the going to end. Uh, they're always open to it. Uh, they're very accessible. We've talked about Max pretty much as much as we can in this race. We sort of know he had a very good race. He said it there. The fastest lap was a real indicator of how much performance he was carrying but the battle for the podium was a little bit less certain through to the end of the Grand Prix it was Norris versus Bottas in the end Lewis Hamilton played a role early but we can really sort of dispatch his race with picking up damage over the curbs at turn 10 I reckon it cost him somewhere in the vicinity of half a second a lap thereabouts the fact that Bottas was much faster than him 
probably tells you enough uh, about that car's damage. But I want to start where where the podium shook out really on lap four. This is where the decisive factor in this podium battle was. It was a battle between Sergio Perez, who didn't play a role in the podium after that, and Lando Norris. Perez trying to pass him around the outside of turn four, went onto the gravel, seemed innocuous enough, considering it was also the lap of the, the restart, effectively a first lap incident. But this was a penalty for Norris, which meant he was easily jumped into pit stops by Valtteri Bottas. Controversial, I think, wasn't it, Matt, this penalty? Well, at the uh, Alex Albon commemorative corner after uh, <laughs> last year at Turn 4 there. But this is a wider issue that, you know, we, we were laughing before we came on air. It's almost easier to say who didn't have a penalty or was mm. uh, being investigated for a penalty after this race and who was. And the thing I'm a little concerned about with the way these penalties are being dispensed at the moment is that... I'm not really sure what Lando Norris is supposed to do there other than just pull over and say, well, off you pop, old mate, and you can uh, go and take second place. I mean, we are having a car race here, aren't we? And (laughs) Sergio Perez put himself in a position where Norris could potentially run him out wide. He gave him enough room. To me, it was enough of a racing incident. I think you hit on the key thing there. It was effectively the first lap of the race, and we know that Certainly in the past, the stewards have been a little more lenient with what goes on all up and down the field. I mean, we only really see what's happening at the front of the field on the TV coverage, but you know there's all sorts going on further down the field on the first lap of a race. And it tends to be a bit of, well, it's the first lap, you know, behave yourselves to a, to a point, but it's always judged differently from the, the subsequent laps in races. So I thought the penalty was incredibly harsh. We had the very unusual situation that we had rival team principals involved in this situation. Christian Horner and Andreas Seidel actually agreeing that it was a racing incident. It was a little bit hard of a, uh, hard of a penalty for Lando Norris. But it did change the shape of the race because I don't know if Valtteri Bottas is getting past Lando Norris on merit on track at this circuit when you look at the relative performance of both of those drivers just generally speaking and particularly at that circuit Lando's in such brilliant form at the moment Valtteri Bottas possibly the most anonymous second place finish we've seen for many a year so it certainly gave Mercedes a bit of a free kick in that regard but I don't know about you but the the penalties yes we want to penalize really egregious uh errors or people forcing one another off into gravel and what have you. I mean, the other part of this equation, of course, is if you had a mountain of runoff on the outside of this corner, then mm-hmm. what, what's Sergio Perez is going to go and drive over some green paint and then jump in front of Lando Norris anyway. So we, kind of, we can't sort of win either way, can we? But I don't know about you, but with these penalties, I just think that there's got to be some allowance for racing. The thing that concerns me is that Drivers may put themselves on the outside of a corner, be run wide in inverted commas, and then the first thing they'll do is get on the radio and say, he pushed me off. Mm. And we saw that a little bit later in the race, and I'm sure we'll talk about this with Sergio Perez and Charles Leclerc, where you can be run out to the side of the circuit, drop the outside wheels on the gravel, and then immediately get on the radio and say, he forced me off, what is he doing? And then, of course, it prompts an investigation. So I don't know how you feel about the application of penalties at the moment, but it seems to be a little bit... Let them race to an extent, but I think it's just a bit too draconian at the moment. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I wonder, you know, it's impossible to say what the stewards think, but I, I wonder how much they felt captured by the precedent of last race, uh, last year, I beg your pardon, when Lewis Hamilton copped a penalty for creating the Alex Albon commemorative corner, mm. which again, I think was probably too harsh a penalty. Uh, certainly that was the case with, with Norris and Perez in this situation, because the driver on the outside is taking the risk. And the the reward of that is that it does 
it does work out maybe norris takes the the incorrect line and you know he manages to keep it off the gravel and passes Mm. but there's no obligation assuming that lando norris isn't taking an unusually you know let's say stroll-esque line to re-invoke lance stroll's (laughs) attempt on daniel ricardo last year at turn three you know that's out that's outrageous. but then he wasn't penalized for that either but norris did did no uh let's say overexerting of himself in defense and i think that that's put on perez but let's dispatch with perez's other penalties while we got it let's get the penalty out of the way mm. uh, because he was subsequently par- penalized in his recovery from 10th where he dropped on that lap uh, up to well, where he finished on the road in fifth ultimately finished sixth because of these penalties once for that exact corner in an almost photocopy incident uh, with Charles Leclerc being on the outside and then again a couple of corners later on another lap pushing him wide exiting turn six very similar incidents the same infringement in fact were either of these warranted? Ultimately, they didn't have a huge bearing for Leclerc's race, but certainly did for Perez and Carlos Sainz as a result of them swapping in the classification. Is this just perhaps a matter of precedent again? Well, I think we had the precedent on lap four, as we were just saying with with Perez and Norris. I think if you're going to penalise Lando Norris for what happened at turn four, you're going to have to penalise Sergio Perez for the similar incident with Charles Leclerc. I think for the second one, the one at turn six with Leclerc, I think there needs to be some sort of context here in that Leclerc was clearly aggrieved with what had happened at turn four. So when he makes the subsequent attack at turn six many laps later, there is an element of literally red mist there where he's angry, he feels slighted, he's already been pushed off. That was a pass that he's never going to make that corner if Sergio Perez is another three feet to the left anyway. You look at the speed he was carrying in there. That was an angry, emotional attempt at an overtake. And as soon as he got on the dirt, he was just sweary, angry Charles Leclerc on the radio. I mean, A, it worked because it didn't work for him necessarily, but Sergio Perez did get a penalty which enabled uh, Carlos Sainz to grab more points for Ferrari. So Leclerc's done a good job there playing the team game. But when you're also going for passes that probably aren't on, that was never really on, that pass. And the fact that you might get squeezed onto the gravel and then complain about it and get the result that you want, I, that's, I don't like that as a precedent. I think the turn four one, they kind of had to give Perez a penalty for that simply because of what had happened with Norris earlier in the race. But the turn six one for mine was someone trying to make an angry emotional pass at a place where they were never going to make that pass. And I'm not sure whether the... Two penalties for you know it's the same it's the same penalty for very different offences. I'm not really sure that the second one warranted a penalty. To be honest, uh, it's interesting. I'm a little bit more amenable to that first Perez penalty against Leclerc simply because he was a little bit wider than Norris and did, in a sense, physically push Leclerc into the gravel. Even if Leclerc was probably heading there either way, mm-hmm. a slightly flimsier defence for Perez. But on the the final of those penalties uh, at turn six, I think you're absolutely right. It was a it was an angry move, wasn't it? We know Leclerc sometimes does get angry, but that did have the uh, effect of penalising Perez right at the end of the race. He lost f- uh, for a fifth place, I beg your pardon, to Carlos Sainz by only seven-tenths of a second. We'll talk about Carlos Sainz in a second, but I want to wrap up with this battle on the podium. We mentioned that Lewis Hamilton ultimately didn't play much of a role because he had damage to his car, didn't have the pace, certainly not to challenge Max Verstappen, but ultimately not even to defend against Lando Norris. But before that defence against Lando Norris even began... It was this really interesting five or ten laps, perhaps, on the Mercedes pit wall because Hamilton was ahead of Bottas, who was ahead of Norris. Bottas clearly faster. Mm -hmm. And this is where the championship permutation seemed to come into play, didn't they? Because there was this spectre of Mercedes asking them to hold station before it was clear just how fast Norris was. 
was it inevitable that they had to go against that championship instinct to allow Bottas through? And could you imagine a situation in which they, they wouldn't have? Well, at first, I didn't think that they were going to get on the phone and say to Lewis, look, out the way, because you're clearly holding Valtteri up at this point. So that was the first step. The second step I thought was interesting, when they did the uh, the synchronised switch at uh, Turn 1 to enable Bottas to be ahead of Hamilton, it seemed like they were hoping that Lewis could sit there behind Valtteri, get in his DRS and just get towed mm-hmm. along for a while to stay ahead of Lando Norris. But I think they realised soon after they probably tried that, that Norris's pace was such that Hamilton was in no man's land no matter what happened. But it was definitely interesting. I thought that in terms of, A, championship permutations, but I was also trying to imagine the situation if Bottas in a compromised car was holding up a faster Hamilton behind him. Now, it's not often that Hamilton's behind Bottas when he's faster, let's be honest. However, how quick would that decision have been made if it was the other way around? Mm. And I'm also looking at this through the lens of Lewis Hamilton's just signed a two-year contract extension, which kind of came... Not from nowhere, but it was earlier than I think a lot of us were expecting. I mean, he only signed his 2021 contract (laughs) about four months ago. So it did come a little bit early. And you've got this, is Bottas staying? Is he going? Or his performance is up to scratch? There's All this is playing out. And you've got Lando Norris just putting so much pressure on Mercedes to make a decision. So I think in terms of what we heard from the radio communication between the drivers, they said to Valtteri, wait, we're working out what we're going to do here. And then he was given a clear instruction, Lewis will move aside for you at turn one, which he did. Interesting the way it played out, though, wasn't it? Just in terms of the dynamic between those Mercedes drivers, one of whom is clearly going to be there for a couple of years, one of whom might only be there for another 14 races. Yeah, I think so. I think the delay in the decision-making was interesting because, as you say, if the cars were the other way around, you get the sense that there would have been a matter of a lap and it would have been over pretty much, especially because early in the race, while Bottas did imply he was saving his tyres, not knowing how the strategy with Norris was going to play out... Mm. He was certainly not on the pace of Lewis Hamilton, as is, of course, often the case. Mm. But probably a a little win for Mercedes behind the scenes, in a sense, because while we don't know, of course, where that second seat is going to go, you know, there have been signs this year and and in years past as well, particularly around team orders, that Bottas sometimes does get a little bit, obviously, unhappy. That's fair enough. But I think letting him past Hamilton will give him a little bit of a... You know, maybe a bit of a positive feeling when there might be some negative feelings coming up later. Keep him sweet for a little bit longer. Yeah, I agree. I think the the other the flip side to look at that is, can you imagine the ramifications of them not allowing mm-hmm. him past? In terms of, you know, look, I don't think Lewis Hamilton's out of this championship by any stretch, but there's going to come a point this season where what happens with the second cars for both Red Bull and Mercedes is going to be really important. And Valtteri is going to need to play the team game at some point, you would think. Mm-hmm. And so, as you were saying, if you've got Lewis Hamilton in a slightly compromised car, what are you really losing here by, you know, you can play the long game a bit, let Bottas go through. Um, but I just kept thinking to myself, geez, imagine if the roles were reversed and, and what would the conversation be like? And uh, yeah, there'd be some interesting radio chat, wouldn't there? Yeah, I think so. And look, but we hope that it comes down to something like that towards the end of the year, because that would at least mean the championship closes up compared to where we are at the moment. Let's talk about Carlos Sainz, who, from my perspective, was really one of the standout drivers of this race for the second weekend in a row, in fact, had a great race for the Styrian Grand Prix, another strong race in the Austrian Grand Prix, one of only two 
drivers, which I thought was interesting as well, to start on the hard tyre after last weekend. Kimi Raikkonen showed that there was there was quite an advantage in starting on the hard tyre, but particularly finishing on the softer compound when tanks were lighter. I could, of course, the track was warmer last weekend, but it warmed up through the course of parts of this race as well. Carlos Sainz put that to really great effect to finish on a, a short uh, but effective burst on that medium tyre, ran really long on that hard compound. And again, I find it really interesting that only... Well, two, three weeks ago, after the French Grand Prix, Ferrari's tyre wear, the story around it was that it was diabolical. It was their <laughs> one weakness. And for the second week in a row, I mean, Carlos Sainz did a longer stint on this week's hard tyre, which was last week's medium. I know that's confusing. Then anyone managed last week and, and uh, this week pushed it to the boundaries again. What do we make of Ferrari? They're, I know they've said they've done some work here, but they've also said that this is inherent to the car and cannot be fixed. Mm. Is this, I mean, we know we're seeing Carlos Sainz's powers improve in this car. I mean, this is a, I feel like a really good sign that he's really arriving. Yeah, look, absolutely. I think, you know, there's a, there's a really good combination between he and Leclerc. You look at the, the combination between the two, very, very similar points now mm-hmm. in the standings. But they, the way they go about it is very, very different. You know, Charles Leclerc's already had two pole positions this year. He's a demon over one lap and he's probably the quicker of the two. Carlos Sainz is like the thinking man's driver in, in some degree in that you put him on a strategy like they did for the Austrian GP. He went to lap 48. It's an unbelievably long stint. And you know, now maybe we look at the fact that they didn't run the soft tyre and qualifying. Maybe they weren't all that upset about missing Q2. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the, the soft tyre runners that did make the top 10 a little bit later on. But this strategy and the way he goes about it, he's just very methodical. He doesn't make mistakes. He's quite... Um, He's more on an emotional even keel, I think, than Charles Leclerc, based on what you can tell. And there's a good combination between the two of them. And I think they play a good team game as well. And we had the situation late in the race where there was a Ferrari right behind Daniel Ricciardo for sixth place. And Charles Leclerc was that Ferrari, and he couldn't get past. Um, Science had the fresher tyres. The team, you know, the team instruction came to get out of the way, and Carlos Science got it done. And then, as you said earlier was able to get close enough to Sergio Perez to gain another place after the penalties have been applied at the, at the end of the uh, at the end of the race after the checkered flag. So really impressive by Ferrari to be able to turn this diabolical tire situation from Paul Ricard just 2 weeks ago around but uh, it's a tricky strategy to execute. It's probably why not more than two drivers tried it but Carlos Sainz he executed it absolutely perfectly and you know couldn't have timed it better in terms of he got past Daniel Ricciardo on the second last lap and mm-hmm. uh, yeah going from outside the top 10 in qualifying to finish fifth just an outstanding performance by him and that team timing is really interesting for this as you said the timing was pretty much perfect for Ferrari and look certainly I think it's fair to say they're not always in that situation where their strategies are perfectly timed uh, you know, we're in a little bit of a Ferrari renewal, I suppose, the post-Vettel era, certainly. These two young drivers bringing similar, uh, different traits, but a similar level of performance to this team. I mean, the pit stop timing on lap 48 was perfect as well. He got out just ahead of Sonoda, which means he didn't have to do too much miscellaneous overtaking. We know that Honda power unit is very quick in a straight line, would have made it that much more difficult as well. How, I mean, that's a big part for Ferrari as well in this battle for McLaren, not being able to see perhaps the true performance picture between these two teams, given Norris is overperforming so dramatically in Austria. Is it a fair fight between these two teams strategically, do you think? Is, is Ferrari in a position to make good on some of those failures of, of previous seasons to take that fight to them? They're better placed than they have been. I still don't know 
that I 100% trust them in a situation where perhaps they aren't able to execute the strategy the way they want to execute it, if they've got to be a bit more on the fly or they're reactive to somebody else. And I think that's the the asterisk for me. I mean, obviously, this circuit, we need to see them do something like this at a different track because we've seen this track two weeks in a row where they've had two really, really good races. But I think they're better placed strategically now than they have been in the past. I'm still not 100% certain. We know how wrong things have gone when they've been put under pressure or they've had to react in the past. So I need to see it before I would 100% be confident in that. But I certainly think they're uh, heading in the right direction. And again, that may just be the uh, you know the, the, the temperament of the drivers in Carlos Sainz's case and just being a little bit more... Uh, flexible in the way that they go about their their races. I mean, to to willingly, effectively sit out Q3, that's an interesting decision on a Saturday. You're not sure whether the Ferrari of a year or two years ago would have made that call, and it was Mm -hmm. the decisive moment of their entire weekend, really, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's worth pointing out as well with Sainz that the recovery was, or the the vault up the field was even more dramatic than he seemed because he dropped a fair few places off the line. One of the disadvantages of the hard tyre, I suppose, but clearly there was enough performance to make up all that ground. You mentioned Daniel Rick. Ricardo, one of the, the drivers he passed quite late, of course, only with a couple of laps remaining. He had a strong recovery of his own to be running in the in the upper points, really, towards the end of the Grand Prix. Couldn't ultimately hold off Sainz, who was on completely different tyres, much fresher tyres as well. Managed to hold Charles Leclerc at bay. I thought it was interesting, though, Ricardo started, I mean, by virtue of starting outside the top 10 on, on fresh medium tyres, but was one of the first to pit. Uh, onto the hard tie, gave himself a slightly longer run on the hards towards the end of the race. I'm just wondering whether, you know, in this context of the strategy battle, yes, he managed to preempt the undercut of Charles Leclerc, although Leclerc then subsequently ran uh, more laps longer than that. I wonder if there's a bit of jumpiness creeping into, I don't know necessarily that side of the garage, but the McLaren pit wall keen to ensure that both cars are scoring when that Ferrari performance is so unpredictable, it's hard to know how that battle for third was going to go. It's easy to say in retrospect, of course, part of the podcast that we get to retrospectively analyse these strategies, but... (laughs) It just seemed a little bit suboptimal to use a McLaren phrase when all the new tyres were available to Daniel here. Agreed. I mean, and you look at the, there's such fine lines here. I mean, it was a lap and a half from being absolutely spot on, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. When you think that Sainz only really got past him on uh, you know halfway around lap seventy of seventy one, so it was it was close. But I think as much as anything at the moment, we saw a Daniel Ricciardo who had a little more. He just seemed to have more confidence and be more like the Daniel Ricciardo that we know from previous years at this race weekend because. We know that Lando Norris has really outperformed him so far this season. I think Ricardo being in a good position, had a good first lap, got a couple of spots and was you know up fighting inside the top six for most of the race. Maybe that prompted them to go a little bit early, but you're right. I was I was surprised. I thought maybe another one or two laps and uh, you know in the wash up, maybe that was a decisive factor. But at the moment for Daniel, I think McLaren are just trying to instill confidence, have a clean race weekend with no issues fight with some cars and it was interesting to see his download after the race he actually said he enjoyed you know he enjoyed the race there was a fun factor that had been missing for a lot of his races previously so I think you know whether he's going to admit it or not I think the confidence would be reasonably low at the moment just simply because of the gap in the points table and he knows he has to pull his weight putting him on a strategy that maybe wasn't razor sharp optimal but also gave him the confidence that he could attack with that car very nearly paid off but I think 
in in the long run, I think it was probably a, a good investment in the the future for Daniel as we move forward into these next batch of races. And did manage to, as was the target at the time, stay ahead of Leclerc. I think science was just on such a different strategy that there's not a lot that could have been done for any of those who had the more conventional medium to hard strategy. Yeah. Let's look at some of the unconventional strategies, though, uh, as we head towards the end of this one. You mentioned there were a couple of drivers who started on softs, were forced to start on softs because of the rule in Q2. And special mention, he has to go to Pierre Gasly. He was the only one of the four. Of course, they all started in the top 10, well, except for Sebastian Vettel, who was penalised, but they all qualified in the top 10. He was the only one to score points. Uh, they all had to stop before lap 17. This was a very delicate tyre, even in the cooler weather. Uh, but Gasly was a bit more decisive in the middle stint, made a couple of passes that meant he was able to rise into clear air for that third stint and make up some positions. But I want to talk about this rule a little bit more generally, because over the last couple of years... The Q2 rule, the tyre rule, has been raised as being unfair at certain races, certainly the ones where the tyres are on the softer side, mm. as was, of course, the case this weekend. And once or twice it has been mooted that it should be scrapped. In fact, it's been proposed that it should be scrapped in years past, but never actually gotten around to it. Has this rule outlived its use by date, particularly in a situation where we do have a couple of teams, and the last couple of years has been only one team, just far away above everyone else, that it sort of makes it a little bit pointless? I think it was brought in to encourage strategic variance. I think that the as as it was anything with F one, you're always looking for loopholes, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we mentioned Ferrari earlier. They saw what AlphaTauri and what Aston Martin were likely to do. It's like, well, that's fine. You can have your Saturday glory. If you're anywhere from sort of third row down and you're qualifying inside the top ten, where clearly you're on the inferior race tire. It's going to get to a point where people are going to try not to make the top 10. It's like, mm. can we all just try and get knocked out in Q2, please? Because as you know, we've seen this weekend, only one of those four drivers scored points, and Carlos Sainz has scored five times as many points <laughs> as the other four guys from Aston Martin and, and Alfa Tauri. So I do wonder if it, the rule in the spirit in which it was created maybe has outlived its, its use by date, as you said. Um, but I think it is very circuit-specific as well. Pierre Gasly was saying he struggled even more on the softs than he expected, and he got rid of those on lap 13 of 71. So he did bail very, very early, and I think you hit the nail on the head before. It was the middle stint of his race that meant that he was the only one of those four drivers that was able to collect some points. That was an outstanding middle stint. He had Ricardo behind him, who was clearly quicker. But uh, you know, Gasly, to my mind, has been a real standout this year. He's had a very, very good season so far. But, uh, yeah, look, you may be right. I mean... The the other way you could look at this is is this a rule that is better for some circuits than others? And but then, how are you going to just determine which circuits uh, you're going to allow this you know, this rule with the the, the Q two tires to exist? Maybe if you're going to have back to back races at a circuit, you could have uh, one race with one set of rules for qualifying, one set with another, just to see if it throws up a uh, a strategic curveball. But uh, when we get to our sixth Austrian Grand Prix this year, perhaps we could do something. A li- perhaps we could do something a little bit different. There you go. It was one of my great disappointments that these back-to-backs last year were not used. Try something, anything. I mean, COVID year, you get that excuse. I don't know that you necessarily get any more. Although this is the year we are trailing sprint qualifying, mm-hmm. I suppose, and that's the next round. We'll see how that goes. Before we wrap this one up, Matt, of course, the strategy report is powered by Heel Tread, socks inspired by iconic cars. You can go to heeltread.com and get ten percent off. But Matt, because you've lent us 
pass your time for this podcast. You get one pair for free, so long as you tell me what they are and why you chose them. Well, I think if you're going to talk about iconic Formula One cars, to my mind, there's two that come to mind. I like things to be a little bit left field. We don't want things to be <laughs> homogenous all the time, do we? So in the absence of there being a pair of uh, Brabham BT46B fan car <laughs> socks, which would be quite something, particularly if they had a working fan on them, <laughs> I think uh, going with the, uh, the Tyrrell P34, the Tyrrell six-wheeler, um, I'm someone who does a fair bit of uh, a fair bit of running, so I figure uh, if I wear them when I'm running, I've got six wheels, a bit more traction. <laughs> I'll uh, be be faster out of the slow speed quarters. But uh, I love a Formula One oddity, and it's amazing, isn't it? That that car is 1974 off the top of my head, and it's still one of the most recognisable Formula One cars in the world. So uh, I'm all for a bit of showboating when it comes time to do these <laughs> things, Michael. So uh, let's uh, let's say that's the reason. We'll go six wheels instead of four. Why the hell not? Look, an excellent choice. I hope it improves your running time. And if you want a pair, go to heeltread.com. Use the code word strategy. It's 10% off. That was the Austrian Grand Prix. A week off after three in a row. And then what's going to be an unusual round at Silverstone for the British Grand Prix. Matt, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Lewis Hamilton would need more than four wins with Verstappen in second just to get back on level terms with Max. And though we're only nine rounds in, Verstappen's momentum is formidable. Hamilton's home Grand Prix at Silverstone, featuring the last of Mercedes' upgrades for the year, is shaping up as a key test of the health of his title defence. Thanks very much to Matt Clayton from the In The Fast Lane podcast for joining me. The Strategy Report is supported by Heeltread, socks inspired by iconic cars. Go to heeltread.com and use the code word STRATEGY for a 10% discount. Make sure you never miss an episode of the F1 Strategy Report by subscribing with Google, Apple, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll be back next week to preview round 10, the British Grand Prix.